Okay, uh, my name is Dominic Grace, and I'm a university teacher at Russia University College in Canada, and I do a lot of work on comics. And I am Eric Hoffman, and uh, I am an independent researcher and scholar, and I write uh, a lot about comics and poetry and uh, the supernatural and a number of other subjects. And we all work together on uh, Jim Shooter Conversations. We just shipped Steve Gerber Conversations. And we're just starting work on Don McGregor Conversations. Although I usually say we're about 80% of the way through on McGregor Conversations. Because that came together really quickly. And then we've been, or I've been, dragging our or my collective feet on it. Well, you had quite a large project to get... uh... Uh, out from under you, as it, as I understand. It was fun getting that 90s book done, though. I mean, I've never felt so much euphoria about completing a project <laughs> in my entire life. Uh, I mean... It, almost always leads to euphoria, right? <laughs> for sure. Um, yeah, well, you've both done a slew of books. Uh, I, I feel like an amateur compared to you guys in some ways. collaborating for uh, over eight years now. I was glad to be... And Keep going. Yeah, we started uh, uh, back in 2011. I put out a call for papers for a collection of essays on Cerebus and Dave Sim. And Dominic, whom I had communicated with a fair amount on the old Cerebus Yahoo group, if you remember Yahoo groups. Yeah. Yep. Yeah, back in the Dark Ages. Back in the Dark Ages, right. Uh, and um, Dominic was one of the more frequent contributors to the Yahoo group, and he had a lot of really interesting things to say. I knew sort of uh, uh, through the grapevine that he was a university professor, and so he knew his stuff, and so I put out the call for papers. And he submitted not only one, but two essays to that book and I took both of them they're both so good yeah and the plan was I'd give him a choice between two and he took them both <laughs> right. but it takes a certain and, kind of person to do two essays when given the chance to just do one I think it says something about you Dom yeah and well, I think it also, yeah. it also says something about the subject matter too true that yes yeah if you heard the, yeah, the recent podcast I did with my friend Keith on Cerebus, uh, I felt like we could have gone for three hours on that topic, at least. Oh, yeah. At least, yeah. Just just scratching the surface, and it's an hour and a half conversation. Right. So then, uh, shortly after, uh, I don't even think Cerebus the Barbarian Messiah had been published yet, and I had already made plans to do a collection of interviews for the University of Mississippi Conversations with Comic Artists series, uh, which uh, our Shooter book and the Skerber book are a part of, and the Don McGregor will also be a part of that series. Yep. And uh, we went from there, and we did one on Chester Brown, and we did one on Seth, uh, and then um, I think that was it, right, Don? That was it in the conversations, and then we did the 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 alternative collection of essays on Canadian comics. Right. Uh, and then just to change up a bit, we did the Twin Peaks book for McFarland. Correct. 
Yeah, that was a contributor to the Canadian comics uh, book. I appreciate you taking my article, which may not have been as academic as some of the other stuff you published. Yeah, that was the essay on on Gene Day. Yeah, yeah. Who a lot? I think uh, uh, many uh, most people don't even realize he is a Canadian. If no, they if they even know the name at all at this point. Right. Yeah. yeah. Right. So well, I think that. No, I'm sorry. Go ahead. I was going to say that's the thing about you know uh, comics, even from not that long ago, is most of the people that did them are obscure now. I think it's the nature of any media, though, that the the people who are celebrities at one point end up being kind of forgotten in the future. It's rare for yeah, someone to be like Jim Lee or something, or or Beyonce, uh, who keeps yeah. public's attention for a number of years. As Dave Sim uh, said in one interview, uh, he would go to a comics convention and he would be a celebrity and everyone would know who he is. And then he'd go to a bar across the street and no one had any idea who he was. Exactly, yeah. So you're a celebrity within this sort of very, you know, specific niche. Yeah. And and very few uh, comics creators can move outside of that into the larger culture. Uh, you know, I could think of just maybe a handful, really, like Stan Lee or Jack Kirby. And even yeah. Kirby, when, Kirby, when he was alive, I don't think he was as well-known or as acknowledged as he is now. No, not in, certainly not in the last uh, decades, really, of his career. Right. So it's, you know, it's a rarity that, uh, that a comics uh, creator is able to uh, have any kind of acknowledgement outside of the medium. I mean, uh, unless they're willing to work in film or television or something, you know, that's uh, um, that gets reaches a much larger audience. Yeah, that's a exactly. big part of it. It's the number of people who would actually see your work is just phenomenally larger in film or TV. Yeah, sadly, I mean, he passed away in 2007, so he's already 12 years gone, and his last work uh, didn't get a ton of attention. Um, yeah. Yeah, he really is kind of a generational figure. The same thing with Don McGregor, too, yeah. where, um, yeah. you know, he created Eric Killmonger. A lot of the Black Panther movie was based on his work. Oops. Yeah. I remember when we started working on the Gerber book, I started looking around because, you know, I hadn't read the Gerber in a long time. And to find, I mean, the Howard the Dark. book, uh, at, at one point we make a note um, of the material that is in print. Yeah. And aside from the black and white essential reprints, uh, I believe there's a few epic collections. DC keeps the uh, has Phantom, kept the, right. fan, the Phantom Zone book. The Phantom, right? Yeah. 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 Uh, but beyond that, not much. No, Nevada's not in print. Um, none of his uh, indie stuff is in print. I mean, uh, Destroyer Duck hasn't been in print for 35 years at least. Yeah. Right. 
and yet Stuart he was, yeah. yeah, Stuart the Rat actually was reprinted in like 2002 in like a really small press edition. But I mean, right. his name is just kind of forgotten, which is a shame because um, it, I hate to be the back in the day kind of guy, but back in the day, he was <laughs> um, the the state of the art for comics art, comics writing. Yeah, he was one of the certainly one of the big ones. Absolutely. And I think Absolutely. I think what made him so special, at least to me, is that he he brought this independent mindset to the mainstream comics writing yep. that was just a really interesting combination where he brought the level of existential doubt of questioning authority of the kind of post the post Watergate kind of approach to the world, which is trust nothing and continue that yep. throughout his life. Uh, but did it in a way that was completely palatable for mainstream audiences. Yeah. So it was, it's running a fine line. And he was also impressive. I was thinking about this, uh, today, because I was thinking, okay, you know, so what, what's worth saying about Gerber? And, you know, to some extent, the 70s was a time when writers were known, right? Mm-hmm. Uh, but when I'm thinking back, I'm thinking, you know, what are, the, who are the writers who were known really because they were stylistically distinct? Like, you could read a few pages and you'd know, or be reasonably sure, this person wrote it. And Gerber's one of the few you can say that about. Yeah, absolutely. I'm not so sure you can say it about say, Roy Thomas or Steve Englehart or a lot of the other guys, not that they weren't good writers, but they didn't have that that idiosyncratic, unique perspective. Absolutely, and I think, <laughs> I think one of the things that distinguishes Gerber's writing is that it, it adheres very closely to uh, the, you know, uh, I guess the idiom of Marvel Comics in the 1970s. Yeah. But it brings to it this almost like underground comics edge, uh, you know, not yeah. so much not so much uh, sexual or drug related material that a lot of the underground sort of leaned on, but definitely the uh, you know uh, anti-establishment and sort yeah. of leftist politics and uh, definitely philosophy uh, as, as you pointed out, Jason, existentialism and, uh, uh, counterculture and, and things of, uh, of that, um, things of that nature he brought to the, to the mainstream Marvel comics. And I think that definitely set him apart from the other writers that, uh, were writing at the time and, and lent yeah. a lot of its distinction. He wasn't interested in writing superhero stories. His characters were, people or creatures first. And I mean, the the perfect example of what you're talking about, it's like the first page of Howard the Duck number one, Howard's ready to commit suicide. And he's going to commit suicide by throwing himself into the incredibly polluted Cuyahoga River which I think caught on fire in 1974, so two years before that comic, um, which was a, a natural national disgrace, so people had that on their minds as well. And it looks oh, yeah, like... Randy Newman wrote a song about it, right? That's right, yeah. Yeah. Uh, and, R.E.M. did too, but like years later. Yeah. <laughs> that's right, Cuyahoga, right? <laughs> uh, uh, that's a very good uh, point, Jason, uh, that his characters were characters first, and... Yeah. And he was able to do that with these very established characters. I mean, even 
Captain America and Daredevil, uh, Incredible Hulk. Uh, these were very well-established characters, and that he was able to uh, not write them as as those characters first, but to almost make them, you know, this was Gerber's Captain America. This was Gerber's Daredevil. This was Gerber's Hulk. Yeah, Gerber's Captain America is a little controversial. I'm, I'm not sure Marvel ever <laughs> followed up on some of those ideas. I love it. Right, but what a, what a great, what was it, three issues? <laughs> I think it was like four or five, yeah. Yeah. And, uh, you know, he had Captain America uh, battling uh, Lincoln Memorial. And, <laughs> uh, yeah. Uh, automobile, and uh, I think it, his, his conscience... Gerber had this thing, he loved to transfer people's consciousnesses to, yeah, you know, to uh, objects or inanimate objects or animals, you know. Uh, well, well, we'll get into that later. We talked about the Defenders, but uh, I think he has Captain America, uh, his consciousness is transferred into a, an enormous robot. Yes. I think it's yeah. a, yeah, the Ameridroid. And instead of destroying the robot at the end of the comic, he more or less frees the robot and says, now you can go and be your own, you know, enormous robot. <laughs> Live your life. <laughs> Live your robotic existence, yeah. Right. Yeah, uh, I'm watching so. Westworld right now, and the way it's like the perfect way to prep to talk about Gerber, because... It's all about these artificial intelligences finding their sentient lives and kind of trying to figure out what they want to yeah. do in the world. And it's still right. so prescient today. Yeah. Right. Well, there, you know, if with Gerber, it was always, there's always that question of identity and who am I? And, and uh, that was really, you know, sort of part and parcel with his generation, right? Because they were the post-World War II, and it was the, the 70s was, you know, that was the, what they call the me decade, and everybody was sort of, you know, soul-searching or <clears throat> trying on new identities, trying on new personas, new philosophies, new religions. Uh, there was quite a bit of, you know, that going on, and I think Gerber sort of, he definitely latched on to that zeitgeist and uh, sort of use the the comics and these established characters as as an expression of that like, uncertainty and yeah omega is really interesting from that regard because i mean you, the characters literally don't even know what they are never mind who they are right yeah had you guys read gerber as kids or did you come to him as adults read his Submariner books because I read those as a kid, but I wasn't really aware of them as a Gerber thing. I, wasn't, I don't think I was really consciously aware of Gerber until Howard the Duck, and I never read a lot of that, but more than anything else, probably uh, Boy Indigo. Uh -huh. I would have been in my early, late teens, early 20s, I think that was, what, 82 that came out, 82, 83? Yeah. Um, yeah, so 82, that, 83, exactly. That was probably the first time I was really sort of consciously aware of him, and I remember reading it and thinking, what's the controversy about? It's <laughs> 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 uh, by the standards, say, of, you know, what we'd expect in a Marvel or DC title. It's pretty rough. 
but um, if so the epic line isn't that supposed to be a line that pushes the bar at the boundaries, the bar, you know, the edges? Um, and was it really that much more violent than what Frank Miller was doing in Daredevil? I don't know. I don't think it was. I think it was more the grittiness and and earthiness of it. So Void Indigo was a yeah. graphic novel Gerber did with Val Merrick, who was one of his collaborators on Howard and Man Thing. Um, and yeah. only they did a yes. Marvel graphic novel and then two issues through the creator-owned Epic Comics. And then the book was canceled for reasons that are still controversial today, among which was the claims that it was uh, very violent. Uh, yeah, and for its time, I didn't think it was especially violent. More than anything, it just had this grit to it, this this kind of nasty element to it that kind of made it more exciting to me as a reader. I think I part of it is that you mentioned, uh, Dominic, you mentioned, well, is this really you know more violent than, say, an issue of a, a Miller Daredevil? And probably not much more. But I think what, what happens is a lot of comics will get a pass because they do feature a familiar character or superhero and there may be something going on in there that's adult or violent, but it's not noticed quite as much if if it's that superhero comic, whereas Void Indigo, even though it had its basis as a Hawkman story originally, uh, it was not a superhero comic. It was this, you know, uh, new character uh, who, you know, and I think also uh, those comics, they didn't have any, like, mature readers... No, that didn't come until much later. So I think that those comics were not being um, withheld from the general public. And so I think when, didn't Jason, maybe you can uh, uh, clarify this for me, but uh, I didn't the, uh, the whole Void Indigo uh, controversy get started because there were parents were getting upset about... Oh, I can't remember. I think it was retailers were were upset yeah, maybe was there was a retail it was retailers okay but I, were, were the retailers responding to parents i think yeah i think it was in response concern. to a parent yeah but, but again the but also these comics cost twice so as I much as people a, see uh, they see a daredevil comic sitting on the, their kids uh sitting next to their kids bed or whatever they may even look at it whereas if they yeah, saw that they they think, yeah, if you want to read the issue where uh, where Bullseye kills Elektra, I think they might think again about that. Yeah. Sure, with the blade sticking out her back, yeah. 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 And for my next track, you know, I mean... Part of it with Void Indigo was, I think, superficial, right? It's, it's A, violent, and B, it's got nudity in it. But I think what really was the problem wasn't so much the level of violence, but that it, it had a much more, as you said, gritty. It, I, I would say it had a more... Despite its science fiction trappings and you know extravagant, you know extravagant plot, it felt more grounded. It felt more real. Even I mean that was the thing with that Daredevil, for instance, that, that I brought up. That really was very grounded violence. Mm-hmm. Right? Yeah. The killing of Spectre really shocked me when it happened. Um, but so much of the spectacular. And if you think about things like I mean the real the real comparator for something like Blood Indigo should have been something like Heavy Metal. Yeah. Right. Because um, that was where the epic line was consciously designed to imitate was that kind of thing. And you know, oh, sure. I mean, uh, the, the the epic illustrated was uh, basically a carbon yeah. copy of heavy metal. Yeah. Without exactly. the boobs. That, that could be that could be pretty graphic and pretty extreme. And by that by within that context, Boy Indigo wasn't really that outrageous. And compared to the undergrounds, yeah, no, not even close. Yeah, yeah. My, you know, I, you asked. Uh, horrified by that. I'm sorry. No, go ahead. 
Oh, uh, so so you came you, that that Void Indigo that was the really the first Gerber comic that you consciously remember. It was, it was probably the first time that I was really specifically aware of Steve Gerber as Steve Gerber. I mean, I, I knew about Howard the Duck, but I hadn't read yeah. much of it. Um, but Void Indigo, that was sort of wow, yeah, this is, and then, then after that, Destroyer Duck, and you know, you know, just sure. go. Did you? Or anyway, it was, it was right around the same time. Did you? So did you? Once you read Boyd Indigo and Destroyer Duck, did you at that point sort of actively search out his other work? Or well, he became sort of, he became much more interesting. But uh, that was also yeah. largely at the point where he wasn't he didn't do that much more after that for the longest time in comics, right? Yeah, he got right. in. He, he, he made the writing. transition to animated television. Yeah, GI Joe. I, I got Stuart yeah. Rat for sure because it was Gerber, and that was just great. Yeah, and that was in 1980, so that was just before uh, Destroyer okay, Duck. So that might, that, might, have, been, that yeah. might have been when I was first aware of him then, because I do remember picking that up, but I probably got Stuart the Rat as much for the art as for the story. Oh, yeah, I had the wonderful artwork, yeah, yeah. by Gene Colan. Yeah, and I was a big Colan fan, right? Um, yeah, sure. So, yeah, so I would have known his name, which is probably why when something like Blood Indigo came along, I was thinking, oh, he wrote, he wrote that. I should look at. I should check this out, right? Right. Well, I'm a few years. I'm a, I'm a few years younger than you guys, so I actually, and I, I almost hate to say this, but I actually came at Steve Gerber watching GI Joe cartoons oh, yeah. <laughs> and yeah, Transformers yeah. cartoons <laughs> and and, it's, and uh, Dungeons and Dragons and uh, Thunder the Barbarian was probably the first. Yeah, I want to talk I, about that. I, I may be one of the unlucky few that of my age that saw the Howard the Duck movie before I was even aware there was a comic book. <laughs> <laughs> well, I think that was most people, so, sadly. Uh, yeah, yeah, not the greatest film ever. No, so so that that was that, and I of course I had no idea. I'm a young kid. I had no idea that this guy Steve Gerber was involved in all of these different shows that I loved watching on Saturday mornings and after school on the weekdays and so on. And then once I started going to the comic shops, as I got a little bit older and, you know, you start to develop a, a, a more refined taste, uh, I started to pick up, uh, you know, by then he was back on the racks again because he was doing Marvel Comics Presents with the Man-Thing story. And uh, I think that was maybe the first uh, with the Tom Sutton artwork. Yeah. Very dense, uh, almost impenetrable Tom Sutton artwork. Oh, but I loved it. And yeah. And I started to, you know, I guess go back and, and go through the back issues because at that point there really wasn't much new Gerber stuff on the racks. This is late eighties, early nineties. Yeah. And he was just sort of tiptoeing his way back into Marvel because Shooter had left. Right. Yeah. And, and I'm sure a lot of the back issues and a lot of the back issue stuff for him was probably not that expensive then either. No, not at all. In fact, I amassed a, 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 a full run of Howard the Duck for probably under 50 bucks. That's amazing. Yeah. And, uh, and you know, went back and found all the old man things. And it just, you know, over the years, I put together a fairly comprehensive Steve Gerber collection. <laughs> He's one of my favorites. And the real revelation, of course, was finding the stuff from the mid-70s. I mean, the... Uh, Oh, yeah. When he when he was his most prolific, when he was with Marvel yeah. Comics, and uh, just some of the greatest, I still maintain that his run on Defenders is one of the greatest <laughs> uh, 
uh, runs of Marvel Comics and, and, and that and their storied history. The headman. Go ahead. As I recall, Jason, you said at one point when we were doing the Gerber book that Gerber was your favorite writer, period. Well, so I discovered Gerber. I just pulled up Mike's Amazing World of Comics, which says which includes a listing of when books went on sale. And in December December sixteenth, nineteen seventy five, I was nine years old, and um, Defenders number thirty three came out, which is part of the Headman Saga, part three of the Headman Saga. The following week, two days before Christmas, was released Howard the Duck number two and Omega the Unknown number one. Wow! Um, and um, I immediately fell madly in love with this crazy Steve Gerber. Like I immediately read the name, connected who he was, and realized this is the same... Th- these are all written by the same guy, because they all had this crazy element of complete wildness to them. They're all about yeah. egos. Um, they're all about people kind of not really knowing who they are. They're all... They all just felt so adult to me in a world where, like, you know, aside from that, I was reading, you know, crappy Avengers comics. Um uh, yeah. You know, the champions, which is just, a, you know, the, the epitome of Mar- Marvel mediocrity at the time. And the whole, like, element of existential doubt just hit me so hard. Yeah. Um, I mean, Omega is like a, a dream factory for a nine-year-old boy, uh, especially one who feels smarter than, than others and who, uh, you know, felt like an, a little bit of an outsider in the little farming community that we lived in at the time in Cooperstown, New York. And so, uh, like, that comic stuck with me for, like, it still, stick, it still sticks with me like nothing else does. Like, I own two pages of original art from Omega, and, like, I literally, like, got weak in my knees when I held those original pages. Like, I got to take care of these. I'm, I'm the only person who owns these. I, you know, I felt this, like, sense of responsibility. So, yeah, I mean, he is my favorite writer in that um, he changed my view of the world, and he still is changing my view of the world even now. Uh, because his work, rereading it today, is still just as powerful to me. Yeah, it's, it stands up really well. It stands up really well. It does. And it's not really of its time, although it is. I mean, there's obviously the sat. It, a lot of his cynicism comes from a po- post-Watergate, post-Vietnam viewpoint. But a lot of it comes from yeah. this just real sincere attempt to kind of figure out his place in the world. And that makes it very timeless. Absolutely. Yeah, I mean, there's all of the the clothing and the uh, architecture and the interior design and everything. It's all very dated. <laughs> but the yeah. characters, and even the lingo and so on, but, but the characters are uh, so... He, he, was, he had such a, a wonderful understanding of human nature and uh, about people and especially about personalities yeah and i think that really gets across in his work that these are all very complete personalities they weren't just uh i think a lot of times you pick up especially a superhero comic and the superhero is a lot of times kind of wooden kind of two-dimensional but his characters were always three-dimensional they were always interesting they always had some you know, uh, something that they were going through personally. I've always noticed that about Gerber is every character he had had some kind of um, 
just just as you go through your life and you interact with people, people always have something going on, something good, something bad, whatever. But there's always some drama taking place in people's lives, and you see that in a Gerber comic. He would always take the yep. time to sort of flesh these characters out and really make them feel lived in. And it's, yep. there's a human, there's a there's like, there's like a human, 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 humanitarian quality to his work that I think is missing in a lot of other writers' work. Yeah, yeah, I'd agree with that. That's such an interesting word to use, a humanitarian, which <laughs> which which almost implies a sort of service to the reader. Uh, in that he's he's giving the reader a chance to empathize with these characters who otherwise might be kind of distant from them. Yeah, and I think, but it's also an understanding of what made those great the the, the Lee and Kirby comics from the '60s so powerful. Mm-hmm. Is that Lee and Kirby weren't just writing these, you know? Uh, I guess I, I can't think of the the word, but the their characters were not. They weren't meta, you know, metaphors for anything. They weren't like, uh, uh, they weren't like in a DC comic where Superman is representational. Yeah. Uh, you know, uh, the Marvel comics. Peter Parker was a real young kid that people could relate to, and and uh, just for example, and I think that Gerber understood that that was what the real, you know, that was the real meat of a Marvel comic. It wasn't the it wasn't the fights and it wasn't all of the, you know, uh, crazy costumes. I mean, that's all nice. But what really, what really set Marvel comics apart was the characters were, you know, they were full blooded characters and they were characters that people could relate to on some real human level. Yeah, I sure did. (laughs) Yeah. At their best. That's, that's Stan's legacy. At their best. And at, Right. Right. Well, that's true. Yeah. yeah. I mean, look at that first issue of of Spider Man, where mm-hmm. Peter Parker decides he's not gonna stop the thief because yep. he doesn't have time. You know. I mean, that's just that's just it in a nutshell. They they were you know these are not like perfect uh, people. They were they were real people with with they had real failings and they had real strengths. Oh, for sure. Yeah. And I felt like that when I was a kid, yeah. Yeah, uh, one of my favorite books to read from this group was the Marvel 2-in-1 issues that Gerber wrote, which were the team-ups of The Thing from the Fantastic Four with various superheroes. And I love that his version of The Thing is happy. Like, he's gone through all the existential stress that Stan put him through, and he's come out the other side, and he's just a very happy, lucky kind of guy cracking jokes just enjoying himself as a minor celebrity and it's like <laughs> we can talk about howard wanted to kill himself but his ben Grimm is like the happiest ben Grimm i think anyone's ever written right and that's and and and, and that was you know gerber was very good at playing against uh i i think a lot of times these characters would sort of get into a groove and it would be comfortable and they would continue on in, you know, a certain way or state or way of being. And Gerber, what he loved to do was come in there and upset it and sort of turn over the apple cart and put these characters into often completely bizarre situations and just see how they would react. 
Yeah. I mean, we can point to the defender's run for, for example. <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> I, I have a very, I have, I have a, a more pointed question. Is your, your uh, Omega original pages, are those Jim Mooney? Jim Mooney. Yeah. Oh, wow. So, yeah, I mean. I'm very jealous. Well, this, this gets to my favorite aspect of this whole thing. Which is so Gerber's Ger, defenders and and uh, Omega especially are very very ground level like they are in the city and it's very New York circa nineteen seventy six yeah. you know the image that we have of New York in decline is exactly the New York he's drawing which you know where there's a crime scene practically on every corner where the subways are covered in graffiti where people live in rat infested apartments and. New York is not a glamorous city. It's a pretty ta- terrible city. And some yeah. people exploited that by doing Punisher-type stories where, you know, an ordinary man goes all dirty hairy. But he, uh, Gerber was much more about the grace of people trying to live in that world. Uh, there's a wonderful sequence in the Defenders run where Valkyrie, who's, you know, the re- literally the resurrection of a Norse goddess, goes into a... I think it's a Puerto Rican family's household and kills rats. that are trying to attack a child in a crib. Right. Um, And it's like, you don't really get any darker than that in your depiction of real life. Very visceral. It's so visceral. Yeah. Yeah. And Omega's full of scenes like that. I mean, the, the one of the beauties of Omega is that even when he fights a known villain like Electro in issue two, um, Electro is very kind of down to earth. He's not a man. The powers aren't who he is. It's the, his kind of screwed up life. That's a lot of what he is. And the second sequence where, uh, he's fighting the cat man, the guy who controls cats, um, and is hypnotizing people. It's very spooky and very realistic feeling because it feels like it's right outside your window from that time period. And it's a lot about this kind of ethnic experience and being this outsider, whether economically or socially. That's going to be more where his interest lay with something like Omega. Remember, I read it, it was, you know, the you know where, where the Hulk turns up or Electra turns up. It's like, oh, whatever. But when it was James Michael dealing with, you know, bullying at school um, or just life on the streets in New York, that seemed to be really more what the core of the book was about. Right. That superhero stuff seemed to be grafted onto it because it had to be there. It's a very, and I would say even Howard the Duck and Man-Thing, and maybe even Man-Thing more so, are really, if you really want to look at it from that angle, they're extremely critical looks at America in the 1970s. Yeah, from the very beginning. I'm sorry. From the first issues, yeah. Sure. Uh, I mean, Howard the Duck maybe in a little more light-hearted fashion, but it's still, uh, you know, the... These are these are comics that they don't you know he doesn't pull any punches as far as and it's not satire it's a, actually a no. real cold <laughs> sort of uh, dispassionate look at this is what where we are and this is what we've become and this is what we have to deal with and it's that was that was one of the things that kind of surprised me when I read Howard is that its reputation was as satire and it's not that it's not there but I think you're right that that's not the core of it. No, not at all. I, I, I think it's more like almost social critique yeah. than satire. Yeah. And at the heart of it I is mean, the relationship between Howard and Beverly, too, and their 
accumulated yeah. friends. Um, I don't want to derail you on this social satire, though. Well, I mean, you could say, I mean, really, like, Man Thing was, I've, I've heard it described as such, but as an environmental fable. And I think that's also used to describe some of a more swamp thing, which very, in a lot of ways, closely approximated Man Thing. And I think yeah. Moore took more than a few swipes from uh, Gerber's run on Man Thing, as far as uh, having a, a, a criticism of uh, corporatism and environmental concerns and so on that runs like a thread through that entire series, the entire run. But that run's also so freewheeling. It's just so wild. You just don't know what's going to happen from issue to issue. Suddenly, well, it's, I, yeah. I mean, I should I should temper that with the fact that it's incredibly fun to read at the same time. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> it's not it's not at all dry. It's not like an academic tra- treatise or or anything like that. It's I mean, they're still comic books and they're still operating within that comic book language of the 1970s Marvel comics. Uh, but the, the the fact that he manages to do that and to uh, to take on uh, more serious topics, like I mean, he takes on quite a few. I mean, uh, feminism, uh, what we talked about, environmentalism, uh, anti-establishment, anti-corporate, uh, pollution. Uh, yeah, you were talking about uh, Jason. You were talking about. You know, uh, uh, poverty, mm-hmm. crime. I mean, all of these concerns that were sort of coming to the fore in the '70s in the United States, and the fact that he's able to take them on and to do it in a way that's absolutely entertaining and still a page-turning comic book—it's quite an accomplishment. It's almost as yeah, if that was one of those, uh, one of those skills. Yeah, in, in the '70s and the '80s that managed to pack so much into 20 pages or 18 pages. It's almost as if the, the the point of the stories wasn't the social satire as much as it was what he wanted to create and what he wanted to create just called on those elements. And so there was this almost uh, second level to those stories where you could read them on a very surface level and enjoy the adventure. But as soon as yeah. you start digging deeper, uh, you can really see the, the real world in them. I always love that the, 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 the main bad guy in uh, Man Thing, his name was F. A. Schist. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, I mean, that's, immediately he gets points for that. I mean, that's just... <laughs> that's Gerber. Yeah. Wait, yeah, and then it, the only parts, the only issue where I feel like he did was a little heavy-handed was the book-burning issue. Um, which just oh toward the end of the run yeah yeah, yeah. Which, which like built really nicely but got to a point where I think he was kind of fanning the flames of hysteria uh, just a bit so to speak that was a really strange mixed analogy wasn't it mixed usually metaphor. when he hits you over the head with something you didn't mind right usually yeah and that felt a sometimes little sometimes you did yeah yeah it felt a little heavy to me um, <laughs> a little little hot to me now did Gerber did, uh, Jason did Gerber start uh, writing I know a lot of a lot of writers who came especially into the com- into comics uh, after Roy Thomas um, took over uh, a lot of writers new writers sort of cut 
their teeth on doing short, like, eight-page comics. Uh, but Gerber didn't do that, right? I mean, he came in and he more or less started writing the full-length comics right off the bat, as I understand. He wrote two or three, but they quickly gave him, I think it was Submariner to start with. Because it yeah. was it was the lowest selling superhero book in the line, and they figured he, he, the kid's not going to do anything worse than what's already happening here. <laughs> oh no, it wasn't. The, it wasn't that it was the worst. It was that um, Bill Everett had been drawing it, and Everett continually missed his deadlines, and then sadly passed away just at the time that Gerber was joining the company. So it was a book where they could just slot a new guy in and have him just take on this work without having affected anybody else. Uh, and so he was free to basically do whatever he wanted. The problem is it was just a bad fit for him. Yeah, and he acknowledges that. Yeah. I think he, he I, correct me if I'm wrong, but I think, as I recall in, in his interviews, he, he said that Submariner and Daredevil were sort of a, a bad fit for him. Daredevil gets, uh, Daredevil gets good toward the end of his run. When he gets involved in... Uh, Necra and the Mandrill, and he gets into these, these interesting satire of, of uh, sexual relations. And uh, Necra remembers this woman who runs around basically in this bikini and has this strange sexual power over men. And he gets into some kind of nice satire of gender relations there, and it builds really well. But that's very much towards the end of the run. Um, did at, he did he create Necra? Yeah, I think he Mandrill? did. I think he did. That, now, that's another thing is that a lot of people don't uh, realize is that Gerber was a, a prolific creator of characters as well. Right. Yeah. Mm -hmm. right. I mean, not just Howard the Duck. Uh, he didn't create Man-Thing, but uh, quite a few of the supporting characters in, in the comics that he did were his own creations. So I'm going to skip ahead as a way of talking about that. I was just reread uh, the 2002 Howard the Duck Max series that Gerber did with Phil Winslade. Yes. Uh, and he's got some wonderful satire in there about work made for higher work. Uh, if, if you remember, in the final couple issues, uh, Howard meets God, or a facsimile of God, and it turns out that God created the universe as a work for higher projects, so therefore he doesn't get any royalties, he doesn't feel any strong sense of ownership of it. And uh, I just yeah yeah still still reeling from the from the Howard the Duck lawsuit it sounds like <laughs> just a little bit just a little bit yeah, playing on it yeah, yeah. <laughs> um, the, but then after after Daredevil he did the, the zombie stories uh, for the Tales from the Zombie magazine yeah basically at the same and I think that's personally I think that's where he really started to come into his own I think. As far as this was not a character that had like Daredevil or Submariner uh, a huge backstory. This was kind of like uh, Tabula Rasa for him, and I think he was really able to sort of stretch his wings and express himself a bit more freely in those stories. You certainly see it as almost kind of like a proto Man Thing, right? And he he had yeah. started writing Man Thing at the same time as writing Zombie. Yeah, I think that's really... Man, man, man Thing was uh, Roy Thomas, I think? Yeah, 
Thomas created Man Thing? Is that correct? Roy Thomas with Gray Morrow and Neil Adams. But they only wow. did one story with Man Thing for Savage Tales number one. They had created the second story, which ran in the first issue of um, of Amazing Adventure, not Amazing Adventures, Fear that Man Thing was in. But Gerber took over with the second story in there. Right. So basically, it was all that, Gerber's. That, that Savage Tales, that's the famous Savage Tales. They only did the one issue, correct? Yeah. Yeah, and he, he was writing like four or five comics a month, every month for a period of time there. Between 19... 19- yeah, I think from 70... At least from 73 or 74 all the way up to 77. It's amazing how quickly he became a star, too. Because when yeah. you're writing that fast, you don't have a time for much editing. Not that Roy Thomas did much editing, either. Um. <laughs> Yeah, it's a it's a it's a pretty meteoric rise, and you think about it, it, it happened within maybe four or five years, and then he was out of Marvel. Yeah, and uh, four to five years isn't a long time, nope. it, especially in the pre-internet age. Right. And yeah, he he basically became. I I mean, I guess within the comics world, he would that would have been considered a celebrity writer. I mean, I think people were buying yeah. his comics simply by virtue of the fact that it was Steve Gerber writing them. Yes, exactly, exactly. Um, and it it's hard to think of anyone who got that popular that quickly and had it not go to their heads either. Because uh, he kept writing his kind of ground level type characters, he never seemed to aspire to write Avengers or Fantastic Four. This was never his yeah, thing. I would say his writing probably got more experimental and more uh, uh, outlandish, <laughs> strange, the more popular he got. Yeah, we talk you know, about the the space orgasm and the Guardians of the Galaxy comic. Yeah. <laughs> right, absolutely. And then he, he got away with it, yeah. Yeah, oh, absolutely. No one paid any attention. <laughs> right. Well, this was, I mean, to give it some context, this was Marvel under uh, Roy Thomas. Not to say Roy Thomas was a bad editor-in-chief, but he was certainly hands-off. And I, I think he was more or less letting the writers edit themselves, if I'm not mistaken. Uh, at least some of them. I think uh, Englehart had that going on, and McGregor definitely. It was one of the lower-selling comics on the stands, too. So, um, you know, they didn't care at that point. It's not a book that they paid attention to. They pay a lot more attention to the Fantastic Four. Right. Um, right, but he uh, even even though he was not writing the top-selling comics, he, he definitely had a, a, a following. A tremendous following. And, right. yeah... And I think it was, you know, as long as, as long as he was, his readership was there, it was, you know, just do what you're doing, Steve. Yeah, well, I think we all know that he only really left because he got in a huge fight about the ownership of Howard the Duck. Right, yeah. Which we and talk about uh, quite a bit, and which is kind of a tragedy. It is, and I think, but that had more to do with the with the uh, Howard the Dick, uh, Howard the, excuse me, Howard the Duck uh, comic strip. Comic strip, yeah. 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 I think certain 
Yeah. It's interesting how there's a couple slightly different stories on on what the triggering reason is that he left, but I'm inclined to believe he really just wanted to own the character that he created and he brought into the world. Um, no one ever wrote Howard the way Gerber did, and you, you can really see it in the the 2002 series too. Um, there's just there's just a affinity for character and creator that no one else has. That that and no one else has for Howard. Come out. I'm sorry. I'm, I spoke over you. Oh, go ahead. Didn't he at some point come out and say, I am Howard the Duck? Yeah. I think we have him saying that, basically. Yeah. Well, remember in the book, we ha- he's on, the, it's on one of those Yahoo message boards. He says, he has a someone saying, I'd like to write a Howard the Duck story. And Gerber basically says, don't write a Howard the Duck story. You don't, you shouldn't write a Howard the Duck story. I appreciate it. It's kind of you to think so much of my character, but... Leave the character to me. Make up your own character. Do your own thing. Create something that's meaningful to you. It's not going to mean anything to you to work on my character. You're going to be doing a different version of my character. Do your own thing. Which uh, is an interesting thing for someone to say who, up until that point, had been, other, like, I'm, you know, other than creating supporting characters and so on, he was predominantly writing other people's characters. Yeah, there's a paradox there, isn't there? Yeah, I did find, I have to say, I found some of his uh, his real antagonism towards people working on work for hire perfectly understandable. But from another point of view, that was his career, and he ultimately basically gave up on owning Howard himself, gave, and, and just, so what did he expect? Yeah. Right? I mean, he made a deal with Marble that left Howard with them. That's the way it works. That's true, and we don't know the exact details of that, because I guess it, you know, it was uh, decided upon that as part of the agreement that he would not say what the actual agreement was, but yeah, we don't know. What yeah, it, was it is. We, yeah. I mean, we, we can safely assume that Marvel owns the copyright. I mean, Howard the duck is appearing in gardens, of the galaxy movies. And while they acknowledge Steve Gerber, it's definitely, I didn't see a copyright Steve Gerber there. Yeah, no, no, it's uh, it's corporate property. Right. Yeah, it was... so it's, it, I, I, you know, it's, 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 admittedly, it's a tough situation. What choice did you have, right? But it's tough. Yeah, it's got to be yeah, heartbreaking. Yeah. And when you're, you know, I'm sure Steve Gerber was, you know, not he was not a wealthy man, so he no. didn't have the team of lawyers that that uh, I guess it would have been Cadence Industries at the time, correct? Yeah. One of the things that he talked about in some of the interviews was, you know, still paying off legal fees years later right 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 so you know he's a man of integrity and and these were you know these were you know he he made decisions about his career that impacted his bottom line and he was not willing to um he was not willing to compromise so you know he he stuck to his guns and and he paid the price ultimately and he oh, was yeah. more or less sort of run out of town. Yeah, but uh, the, at least as far as Marvel was concerned, the paradox yeah. to me is that I think he probably was more successful working on GI Joe and Thundar than he was. Uh, well, he made more money. Yeah, I, I would I would assume he made more money in animation <laughs> than he ever made in comics. Yeah, and you know I think the average person who would know the name would know more for Thundar. Than uh, for Marvel Comics, also. Maybe. Oh, sure. Yeah. Uh, 
So uh, there's a there's a note in the 2002 Howard book that I want to read to you. So God is talking to or the godlike creature. I, I don't know what to call him. Yah, he calls himself. Short for Yahweh, I just thought that sounded very nice, he says. Um, it's talking to Howard and, Howard, and he says, You can't look to a higher being to find a purpose in life. You won't get the answer from any so-called holy book. And no priest, pastor, rabbi, imam, guru, cult leader, celebrity, athlete, or comic book writer has it. Howard says, what does that leave, sanitation workers? And Yah says, <laughs> it leaves those creatures who are willing to and able to examine themselves and the world around them. In other words, ducko, you have to find your own little bit of grace. Which is beautiful, but is so, so Steve Gerber, right? This is exactly what we were talking about from his message board posts. Yeah, he's, you know, when I talk about his humanitarianism or, or, you know, his his, uh, humanism or however you want to describe it, uh, he he really takes a a joy in the absurdity of human existence. Uh I mean, he... He definitely recognizes that human beings are absolutely bizarre creatures, and he really <laughs> revels in that. <laughs> and, and, and all their monstrosity, and he certainly doesn't shy away from violence or any of the more horrible aspects. I mean, especially if you look at some of his later work, like Hard Time, uh, or, you know, Void Indigo. I mean, they're, they're pretty gut-punching works. But still, at the same time, he, you know, he's still... You, you can really sense that he really enjoys scrutinizing people. And I think the superhero is a person that's sort of amplified in a very Gerber-esque way. And I think that that was why his sort of view of humanity was such a good fit with those comics. Because- they really complemented one another. He could really work within that medium in a way that I don't think, you know, I mean, we talk about his animated works, and certainly Thundar is a memorable cartoon character, but you watch, I mean, if you've seen these cartoons lately, I mean, they're they're very flat, and, you know, Saturday morning cartoons and afternoon cartoons were not known for character development. They are mostly known for selling toys in the 1980s. And so, you know, he did, he, I'm sorry. I never really saw him though. I was, I was like in my twenties by then. So yeah, you were beyond the age. So I, I cut my teeth watching them and I got to say, you know, uh, there's a nostalgia factor, but going back and watching those cartoons, some of, most of it is quite painful. (laughs) I mean, it's not a really enjoyable experience to watch a lot of those cartoons. Um, no, they don't. Um, you know, I, I there are some Gerber-esque touches in some of the episodes where, you know, it's a known quantity of Gerber because it's got his name on it. He wasn't just the script doctor or the editor or what have yeah. you. And there there are some touches that stand out. And you go, okay, yeah, that, you know, I can see that. But I, I really do think that it was any medium that Gerber was going to s- express himself in, it was going to be comics. Well, for so... So for the two of you who've done works on some of the great indie creators, uh, the the, the, trilo- the Canadian trilogies, you say, 
Um, do you think yeah, there's something yeah. unique to comics that allows for the auteur to really shine? Is it because of the low cost of entry? Um, because it's <laughs> well, certainly production value is much. The production cost is a lot lower. I mean, really, yeah, so anyone with that, a there isn't that. Yeah, there isn't that economic preventative. Uh, but uh, it, it's definitely not a lucrative business. I mean. Uh, uh, I heard a recent interview with Dave Sim, and he was talking about in the best of times in the 1980s during the black and white boom, when self-publishing was, you know, uh, you know, um, a, a possibility, you know, and under the old methods of distribution. Yeah, uh, it was not unknown for uh, known comics creators and self-publishers to lay out a couple thousand dollars for a, a print run and make back $75. Mm-hmm. And that's not over your cost. I'm talking make back $75. So Ooh. you're talking at a $1,925 loss. Right. So, uh, you know, I, I don't know where economics enters into it, but I, I think certainly uh, comics as a medium is, uh, particularly after the 1960s, uh, it really, you know, in the undergrounds, uh, started to come along. Um, I think it became for, as far as artistic expression, uh, certainly after Crumb and, uh, 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 and, and, uh, Spiegelman, uh, a lot of younger uh, artists, you know, there was sort of a, the, the path had been beaten, and so maybe it was a little less uh, difficult for them to see a way in to do the, the, the kind of work that they did. I'm speaking specifically about Chester Brown and Seth. Yeah. Well, more than any other art form, comics, you can literally do it yourself. I mean, you can, you can, you can do a novel now yourself with the Internet and self-publish but in the 70s and the 80s, you could, like, self-publish a comic book for not very much money, right? So someone like Dave Sim or Chester Brown or any of those guys, they wanted to do comics. They could go to Kinko's, mimeograph something for a few bucks, sell it on street corners. Make that, which, money is what, which is what Chester Brown did. Right? Entirely yourself, yeah. yeah. You can do it entirely yourself. Yeah, there was a mini-comic mini mini uh, um sort of subculture that was happening particularly in the 1980s after Xerox yeah. started popping up on every street corner. Right. Yeah. But pretty much any other art form, you need a company to produce it. Or you did need a company to produce it. And that wasn't the case with independent comics anyway. So do you, do you see Gerber's maybe a little bit of an extension of that same approach to the world? Kind of... Uh, Maybe not obviously self-publishing, but is is he part of the same family as Chester Brown and Harvey Picar in a way? Because his comics are very autobiographical and they're so, certainly auteur-driven. I, I go back to Gerber saying, "I am Howard," and I think that's such an interesting thing for him to say, uh, because you know he did create the character. How much the character is an homage or? or a swipe from uh, a Disney. Uh, it's a knowing glance, yeah. and certainly Howard, as a character, uh, he put uh, Gerber put a lot of himself into it. And I think the closest 
relative there, and Dom, you can correct me if I'm wrong, would be Cerebus. Oh, yeah. Uh, not, on, not only did Cerebus begin as a, uh, as a, not, I went, it's not a ripoff, but it was certainly influenced greatly by Howard the Duck and by uh, Barry Windsor Smith's Conan the Barbarian comics. It was sort of a mashup of the two. Uh, with, you know, with the spirit of a Chuck Jones Warner Brothers cartoon. Um, genius was for synthesis. <laughs> yes, yeah. his genius was for synthesis. But, but yeah. Cerebus, uh, Cerebus very quickly became uh, Sims, you know, on-page persona. Yeah. Mm-hmm. Uh, and and it got to the point where uh, Cerebus was more or less his uh, alter ego. Within yeah. the comic, even. So yeah. it's you know, uh, and and um, it got a bit meta in there. He introduced a character named Dave, always in quotes, and I believe uh, Gerber had a few meta moments, as I recall. Man, the that final issue, uh, he wrote himself into the final, final issue of Man Thing. Yeah. yeah, yeah, Man Thing, correct. And I think there was also a meta issue of, of Howard the Duck that came about because he missed his uh, deadline. Yeah, well, the one that was mostly good text panels. He right. always, uh, and he would frequently yeah, write himself into his own that, stories, yeah. too. Paul Same, who's a Howard supporting character, is Steve, who is Winky Man, because Steve famously fell asleep on, at his desk uh, when he was working at Marvel. <laughs> right. So I, I can't say that uh, Gerber is in the same outfit or whatever as, as those indie comics artists that came later but I would definitely say that Gerber was an enormous influence on them yeah he's maybe, on the continuum. maybe maybe not directly but certainly yeah definitely on the continuum I, he definitely fed into that into that uh, uh, well you know I back in the day they didn't have the term indie. I mean, it was uh, there was undergrounds, and then there was above grounds, and then there was ground level. And Cerebus was sort of the you know uh, flagship of the ground level comic. Yeah, and I would say that uh, Gerber's fusion of underground and above ground sensibilities certainly anticipated the sort of things and experimentations that the ground level comics were doing. Yeah. In the late seventies and early eighties. Yeah, it's fascinating yeah, that interesting about a lot of those ground level comics is they're really only baby steps away from what was happening in the mainstream comics. Yeah. Right. They're significant steps, but they were small steps at first. Well, in fact, Star Reach published a comic called Quack that was all funny animal comics. And Steve yeah, Lealoha right. and others uh, created comics that starred duck characters. Because Howard was and so Sid big. contributed a strip to a couple issues of Quack. Yes, the Beavers. The Beavers, right. Which was a failed newspaper strip of his, which is so yeah, funny. And I believe Friedrich also notoriously rejected, in the same month, both ElfQuest and Cerebus. Oh, really? <laughs> From Star Wars. <laughs> yeah. And the, both uh, Richard and Wendy Peeney and... Uh, Dave Sim approached him the same month with their properties, and he declined both of them. <laughs> That's so funny. Yeah, well, yeah. But yeah, I, you know, I Gerber, uh, he sort of 
went off the map in the mid-80s, right, at the time when comics were sort of having a revolution in, in quality and, and uh, media attention. And he was sort of one of the guys who lit that fire that got, the, you know, the flames were fanned in the 80s, and he was nowhere to be found. Yeah, I've always wondered what would have happened if Void Indigo had come out in 85 as opposed to 82. Yeah, if it had come out... After more on Swamp Thing. It looks like uh, the graphic novel was published in 83. Okay. Under under Shooter. I mean, well, technically it was under Archie Goodwin. Right. uh, But nevertheless, under Shooter's regime. And then uh, the the two issues that were published were uh, came out in eighty four. Okay. Yeah. So he would have been. It was just on the cusp of all of the, you know, Watchmen, Dark Knight Returns transformation yeah, a year later, in my industry. Yeah. yeah. So yeah, a year later, nobody would have even blinked. Yeah. Yeah, it's just a, ba- a case of bad timing, I think. Yeah, and then he. Jason, you you uh, know this story better than any of us, but he also had planned uh, a three miniseries with Frank Miller, one of which eventually became Dark Knight Returns. Yeah, they they proposed the Metropolis line of comics for DC, and we include a piece from Amazing Heroes that I think Peter Sanderson wrote um, that profiles that line specifically the Wonder Woman series that Gerber was going to write. Well, and then uh, he. After Shooter left, I mean, he did some work for DC. Yeah, he did in, Phantom Zone, which was in the amazing. Late 70s, yeah. early 80s, and most famously, I guess, is the Phantom Zone miniseries, which, yeah. as I said, is, has been in print by DC, I think, continuously. It's a very popular uh, storyline that was sort of a, a spinoff of Superman 2, the movie. And then... Uh, after Shooter left Marvel, I'm assuming Tom DeFalco got on the phone and said, hey, Steve, we've got this sort of um, omnibus series that we're doing, and would you like to do a story for it? Is there any is there any character you'd like to do a story on? And that's how the Man-Thing uh, Marvel Comics Presents came along, and then he went on from there to do uh, the She-Hulk uh, kind of totally bizarre uh, She-Hulk run and then the Fool Killer miniseries. Oh, Fool Killer, yeah. which we talked about in the uh, previous Steve Gerber episode, but it, it, yes. that's another book that's haunted me for years. Yeah, and definitely deserves to be brought back into print. Yeah, oh, it's so good. It's, it's so dark. Good. Yeah. yeah. Given that they brought Devil Dinosaur back into print, you think they could manage Fool Killer? Yeah. <laughs> Yeah, and you notice that when he came back, I don't know if you guys have noticed this, but uh, and maybe it's just a sign of the times, but really from like the 90s on, his work became considerably darker. Yeah. Yeah. Yeah, we see it in the in the 2002 Howard, um, and we see it in yeah. other, other work too, where, yeah, Hard Time obviously is about, well, not obviously, Hard Time, if you haven't read it, is uh, basically about a boy being possessed by a demon and committing a Columbine type school shooting and right. is really dark, beautifully dark, but also just deeply, deeply dark. Right before he died, he did a Dr. Fate series for countdown to mystery. I think it was called. 
Uh, Down to Mystery, right. Which 2007, ha- 2008, yeah. Which literally has the, the new Dr. Fate, who happens to be named Kent Nelson, um, living out of, dumps, of a dumpster at one point. Um, yeah. <laughs> I mean, it's dark, yeah. Um, Definitely. Do you... Do you think do you think this is him kind of late in life getting more depressed? Getting maybe it's his his I, lung illness wonder, kind of getting to yeah, him. Yeah, I, wa- I, I do wonder at that. You know, I mean, it's not to say that his comics ever shied away from that subject matter, but as I said earlier, it, it did it in a way that was I wouldn't say lighthearted, but was certainly I guess less cynical. Well, there's an uh, there edge always, to that later uh, work, yeah. Yeah, I mean, there was in the, there was always like a hope behind it that you know, good would prevail and justice would be served. And then I think in the later stuff, it's Gerber's kind of resigned that this sort of um, thing or these these sorts of things that he was sort of railing against back in the seventies uh, during the Reagan era. Uh, took over and the bad guys more or less won and yeah. now we just have to deal with the fallout. God, you can only imagine what they'd be thinking these days. Oh, God. <laughs> that doesn't bear contemplation. I, I would I, I would love to see, it would be, it would be cathartic to see <laughs> Steve Gerber do like a new Destroyer Duck with Donald Trump as one of the characters. Yeah. And see what he would do with that. I mean, I think we need that, right? <laughs> so I think we're getting yeah. to the end of where I was hoping to get at in terms of the time on this. I want to ask each yeah, of you. Yeah, for an hour, I think. Yeah, we're at yeah. hour fifteen of recording, so I don't want to. I don't Can want to I just too... ask you guys one last thing before we hang up? Yeah, and I had a question too, so go for it. Yeah, uh, it's a quick one. Which which of Gerber's works do you think has had the most or will have the most longest, uh, I guess, impact? And also, uh, which of his works is your personal favorite? And maybe they're the same. I think there's no doubt that Howard is on that have the longest impact. But of the Gerber that I've read, probably the one I found most interesting was Omega. Right. So as I said at the beginning of the call, uh, Omega this to affected me more deeply than anything. Although uh, the Defenders run from that same time period is just so extraordinary that um, I almost have to call it a tie. It's hard for me to choose between <laughs> my two favorites. Um, in terms of the longest influence, I almost feel like it's the Phantom Zone. Just, just because yeah. it was really well read and it's still in print, and he and Gene Colan do such a great job on that series together, um, and just play up the power of that series that it really kind of stands out to me. Very interesting. Yeah. What about for you? Oh, myself personally. Um, as far as the longest impact uh, or longevity or, or what have you. Uh, I, I actually would lean more toward Jason than, say, Phantom Zone. Yeah. Mm-hmm. It's really, for some reason, that, that one story has had a real impact, and it seems like younger fans know it, it, and maybe that's by virtue of the fact that DC stuck behind it, kept that thing in print and on the shelves. 
Yeah, it could be. I'll defer to your expertise on that. And as far as my personal favorite, I got to go with Howard. I love Omega. Uh, I love the Defenders run. I think the Defenders run, as far as superhero comics are concerned, is just about one of the greatest things ever. But uh, as far as my personal, just for personal reasons, I got to go with the duck. (laughs) That's a a good call. (laughs) Yeah. Okay, so last question is, uh, next book is the Don McGregor Conversations. I'm not sure how much you've dove into McGregor's work at this point, but give me your quick impressions of him and how he's different from Gerber. Obviously, there's big differences well, there, but they're, they're kind of held up yeah, as two of the top uh, three writers of their time. Yeah. I think, this, this might sound strange, but Gerber has always struck me as being a very sort of um, organic, intuitive writer. Mm. Um, and McGregor seems to me to be a more sort of architectural writer with a more carefully worked out system or plan. Gerber comic feels like it can go anywhere. Uh, I'm not suggesting that a, a Don McGregor comic feels schematic, but there's always, a, to me, a, with his work, uh, and I think this may be reflected on the fact that he was so good at doing things like detective stories. Like, one well, of my favorite McGregor things is the Nathaniel Dusk stuff, right? Oh, yes. yes. Yeah, with Colin again. <laughs> well, that's why I got it, right? Yeah, so, right. Sure. You need, uh, you need that sort of um, large uh, plan. So I'm not saying, I'm not, again, I'm not saying that Gerber didn't have those sorts of things clearly it was stuff like Omega but it also seemed to me like Gerber was much more able to much more likely to go off on byways whereas with McGregor he always felt I always felt anyway like uh, there was a clear trajectory a clear direction you as a reader might not know what it was but it was there yeah it's a good insight by the way yeah the, the epitome of Gerber you not knowing where that was was his run on uh, Morbius in fear where the comic just transformed yeah. from issue to issue. It was just one issue. It's a horror comic. Next issue. It's a sci-fi comic. Next issue. It's a detective yeah. comic. It's just all over the place. And yeah. that randomness just made it kind of uh, eternally surprising. But good, good observation though. McGregor was always very schematic in a way. Yeah. Yeah. That's a very, that's a very crucial distinction between the two. And absolutely correct in my opinion. Uh, I, 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 my, my favorite McGregor stuff is, is, you know, it's Saber and, and, yeah, Detective Zinc. You know, he's, he's got this absolutely, um, uh, absolutely authoritative understanding of how a story works. Yeah. And I don't, sense that in Gerber. Gerber, yeah. I think I don't think Gerber could tell you. I, I think if you sat down at a class with Gerber teaching you how to write a comic book story, I don't think you would ever fully. I don't think he could tell you, and I don't think you would get anything out of it, except maybe a really great conversation with Steve Gerber. <laughs> but with McGregor, I think it's like a master class. He's I could I could yeah. see him, you know. Uh, understanding the the whole structure of, of how you tell a story and and like Dominic said uh, it's that's not to say that he's not uh, able that he that he's you know just paint by the numbers no but, no sure not right 
it's certainly not. Uh, it, I'd say one thing that the two have in common is that I, it would, either of them, uh, though they are writing radically different styles, uh, they both are able to resist uh, uh, predictability. Yes. Uh, both both of them are able to write comics where, you know, like, like Dom says, you, you never know where they're going. And uh, there's twists and turns that you never see coming. And that is, that sort of uh, profound uh, uh, creativity is something that I just marvel at. And, and so, yeah, McGregor is, is, he's incredible. He's, he was one of the guys that changed the language of comics. That's for sure. I agree with all that. That's a really great insight. Um, Because Don talks a lot about how his biggest influences are the crime writer Ed McBain and the TV producer Sterling Siliphant. Yeah, I definitely see the McBain. And and one thing that struck me is uh, uh, Kurosawa did an incredible uh, uh, adaptation of a McBain novel called, uh, well, I'm, I'm sure it's not the same title as the novel, but the, the film was titled The Bad Sleep Well. Yep. And uh, it's an incredible film. And I remember seeing that movie and at one point thinking to myself, you know, this kind of reminds me of a McGregor comedy. <laughs> <laughs> so, <laughs> just the way it was structured and, and, and you know, the just the, 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 uh, the pacing and the tone and everything. And so when I found out later that McGregor, you know, like online or in an interview or something somewhere, he mentioned uh, McBain's influence on him. I said, yep, there you go. You know, it's that hard boiled sort of uh, crime novel where there's this like ultimate, uh, a maximum um, uh, economy of storytelling and no, uh, there's no, you know, nothing is, every line of dialogue is adding to the story. There's nothing extraneous. And, yeah. uh, and that's McGregor. There was no elf with a gun in McGregor. No. <laughs> or if there was, it would have a purpose. If there was, it would, yeah, absolutely, right? Everything would come together with that elf and his gun. It's not, yeah. I just felt like having an elf shooting people. Is literally what he says. I just thought this would be interesting. Right, that's, yeah, that's, uh... I wish we had had more years of Steve Gerber. I hope we have more years yeah. of Don McGregor doing his comics. Yeah. Um, well, he's still active. I mean, he's still, uh, you know, he's still out there. So that's, you know, that's great. Yeah, we'll do it. We'll definitely do another one of these after we do the McGregor book. Thanks for, oh, for sure. This was fun. This was yeah, fun. I'm glad yeah. we got to do this today. Yeah. I would love to do one on, on shooter. I, I think that that would be, uh, if anything, it would give us all a chance to, you know, uh, um, to sort of vent. 